When was the last time someone offended you? How did you respond? Several years ago, Marie Cooley of Jacksonville, Florida, she saw a help wanted ad in the local newspaper for a position that looks suspiciously just like her current job. Not only that, it had her boss's phone number listed as the person to contact. Tell me, what would you think if you saw that? You know what Marie thought? She assumed she was about to be fired. Offended, you know what she then did next? Late at night, she broke into the architectural firm where she worked and erased seven years worth of drawings and blueprints estimated to be worth over $2.5 million. She figured she was going to get the axe, so she decided to make her employer pay. However, it didn't take long for the owner to figure out who done it, since Marie was the only other person who had full access to the files. Police arrested her the next evening. Fortunately, the owner of the firm was able to recover all the files using an expensive data recovery service. Yet here is the most interesting twist to the whole story. Get a load of this. She was never in danger of losing her job in the first place. The ad was for the owner's wife's company. However, due to her actions, Marie no longer works at that firm. Now, before we all get ready to throw stones at Marie or laugh at her, let me ask you again. When was the last time someone offended you, and how did you respond? Can I ask, have you ever been tempted to get back at someone who hurt you? Now, you may have never done something as dramatic as erase $2.5 million worth of architectural blueprints. Yet, has someone hurt you so deeply that you kind of wish you could do something that dramatic to them? I mean, who here has never been tempted to get back at someone who hurt or offended you? Be it a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, a spouse, a sibling, or a teammate. Especially, man, especially when you've shown that person such kindness and care. Who hasn't been tempted to get back? It's someone who hurts you. Well, welcome to the situation before David in our passage this morning. In 1 Samuel 25, David encounters a man who offends David in a rather significant way. And David, like so many of us, he is tempted to enact revenge. You see, in 1 Samuel 25, we find David uncharacteristically acting and behaving like Saul. Indeed, in this chapter, David is on the verge 
of disqualifying himself from being Israel's king. David almost ruins his life and takes the lives of others because of his short fuse. Yet he doesn't. And you know why? Because in this chapter, God teaches him a valuable lesson concerning revenge. Specifically, how he ought to think about his pain and his hurt. And faith, this is the lesson we need to know as well, especially when we are offended or hurt. So if you haven't already, turn with me to 1 Samuel 25. That's page 247 in that paperback Bible underneath the seat in front of you. And this morning we're going to be covering the entire chapter. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read this text. We begin chapter 1 of verse 1 of chapter 25. We read this. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Now we, we just need to pause here for a moment. This is, as you can imagine, this is a pretty significant statement. The, the chapter opens by reminding us and letting us know of the death of Samuel. Now why is that mentioned here? Well, though he is not officially the high priest, Samuel had been the chief religious leader in Israel for many years. And something that we need to know is that in the Old Testament, the death of the high priest cleansed the land and enabled those who were in cities of refuge to return to the land. Okay? Now think about this, how this applies to David. David has been a fugitive in the wilderness, has he not? But now that Samuel has died, we're about to see him re-enter the land, right? So we continue on. Then David rose and went to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, shearing the sheep. This is also a significant point in the text. As several commentators have pointed out, uh, you could say shearing time was shearing time. This is to say such occasions called for feasting. And we're going to see that as the chapter unfolds. Indeed, there was a fine old custom, kind of like an unwritten law at that time, that at sheep shearing time, you gave gifts to those who had been protecting your flocks. This was the custom of the day. And as we're about to read, David and his men have been doing precisely that for Nabal. They've been protecting and watching over his flocks. Verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. 
And thus you shall greet him, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the entire time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at the hand to your servants and to your son David. Keep in mind, David and his men are on the run. Okay, they're hungry. They need supplies. The custom of the day, if you've been watching over the sheep, bless those with a feast. This is an, an honest, normal request. Verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal and in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from where I don't even know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. Do you know what Nabal's name means? It means fool. And he's certainly living up to his name. Notice how self-centered he is. In a single verse, Nabal managed to use the first-person pronouns eight times. Like a spoiled child, Nabal could only speak of what was his, and he wasn't going to give David any of it. Now, when we first hear about Nabal's name back in verse 3, it should have tipped us off that he's not going to be agreeable and he's going to be unwise. In fact, in many ways, uh, verse 3, when we first hear of his name, it kind of reminds me of the first line in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when it introduces a rude boy named Eustace. Do you guys remember this? Remember? I, I love this line. It's one of my favorite lines. I'm not sure. The book opens with these words, right? There is a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> right? Right? That, that, same thing with Nabal, right? Nabal is living up to his name here. So do you see the picture? This is the picture I want to see. David and his men have been extending kindness to Nabal. And at a time when it is custom to extend hospitality towards those who have been caring for you, what does Nabal do? He basically tells David and his men, go pound sand. So notice David's response in the following verse. Verse 13. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. Why do you think they're putting on their swords? He's, he has intentions to act just like Saul when Saul killed everybody at Nob. Every man strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up with David while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men, this is one of the servants of Nabal, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, 
David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at him. Now, there are um, there's lots of dynamics going on in this, in this chapter, but we're going to see this guy is really the unsung hero, this no-name servant. If he does not relay to Abigail what had happened, this is a short chapter that ends in bloodshed. But this, this guy has the courage to go and mention this to Abigail, and he tells her how he railed against them. Verse 15, Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. Listen to this. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. He's saying, look, look, David and his men have been so kind and good to us. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, you know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all this house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal, and as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountains, behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. Can you imagine the scene? Upon this hillside are 400 men with swords coming towards you. And you're a woman on a donkey with some food. <laughs> Talk about an intimidating scene. Verse 21, or verse 20. And she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of mountains. And behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. Now David had said, he's speaking to himself as he's riding down, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Evil for good. There it is. Do you see it? This is the heart of the matter. This is the heart of the chapter. David has shown this man kindness, and in turn he has shown him evil. This is why David is about to shed blood just like Saul did in the village of Nob. <clears throat> Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, 
and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you, if you're the underlying type, you might want to underline that. The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. He's saying, look, David, you're going to be king. We know this. And thus far you have not shed blood. Guilty blood. Don't stop now. Verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you, and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of, the li- of living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall be slain out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Now, Abigail says a lot in these verses, and she says the word Lord a lot too, doesn't she? (laughs) Right? Can kind of get a little confusing. Yet the main point of her plea to David is simply this. David, as I mentioned, up until this point, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt by taking matters into your own hands. God is going to make you king, David. He's promised this. So don't become king with blood on your hands now. In other words, she's saying to David, leave it to the Lord to avenge you for my husband's stupidity. And notice that's exactly how David understands her message. For look at what he says next there in verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. So who sent Abigail? The Lord. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and for working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has what? Restrained me from hurting you. Unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. The Lord restrained me. Notice Abigail may have been the messenger, but ultimately who was it that restrained David? The Lord. The text makes this very clear. It was God. Verse 36 or 5. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Notice the fool is acting like a king. 
And Nabal's heart was merry with him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning night. Notice, uh, Nabal is engaging in the customs of the day. You know, sharing time was a time for feasts. He's having a feast, but notice, no guests are there. It's just for himself to indulge in his own pleasures. Verse 37, in the morning, when the wine had got out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Who struck Nabal? The Lord. Notice, the Lord avenged David, didn't he? And David knows this is the case because of what he says next. There in verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has what? Avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil on Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Now, <laughs> don't hate me, okay? Don't, don't be offended <laughs> by what I'm about to say. I don't want to burst your romantic bubble, okay? But it's actually not a good thing that David is taking Abigail to be his wife. If the chapter ended there, it could be. But actually what is going on is David, this is the first in the step of taking multiple wives, which he ought not to be doing. Because notice how the chapter ends. After he, there in verse 40, when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David sent us to you to, to take you to him as his wife. And we can even just see now, this is the crack in David's armor. This is what's going to lead to his demise later on, right? Beautiful women. Verse 41, And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Lahish, who was of Galen. Amen and amen. This is God's word. As, as you might have noticed, the title of my sermon is Dear Abby. Yet I realize that there could be some young people here who have no idea as to what that's in reference to. In fact, judging by some of the blank stares I'm getting, it appears I could be correct. For those of you who don't know, Dear Abby was an American advice column founded in 1956 by a woman named Pauline Phillips. Abigail was her pen name. And according to Phillips, you know who was the inspiration for her pen name? The Abigail we just read about in 1 Samuel 25. 
And just like those Dear Abby columns in newspapers of old, the Abigail in 1 Samuel 25 has some counsel for David. Indeed, it's a lesson we all need to learn ourselves. And you know what that is? Very simply, it's this. Vengeance is the Lord's, not yours. Vengeance is the Lord's, not yours. Faith, this is the main point that the author stresses in our text this morning. Vengeance is the Lord's, not, not yours. Notice how the author makes this abundantly clear. In this chapter, God is not only credited with restraining David. I, I count four times in verse 26, 33, 34, and 39. God is not only credited with restraining David, but he's also the one who repays Nabal for his evil, selfish actions towards David. And through this event, God is trying to teach David, and I believe by extension us today, this truth that vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. As God's people, we are commanded not to repay evil with evil. You see, in many ways, 1 Samuel 25 illustrates the apostolic command we are given by Paul in Romans 12, 19. Remember what Paul writes? I have it here up on the screen. Let's say it together. Ready? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, when your husband offends you, and you really, really want to get back at him to make him pay for his offense. Or when your boss intentionally makes your life difficult and you want to make him suffer. Or, children, when your sibling harms or hurts you and you want to get back at them as well. The story from 1 Samuel 25 and the apostolic command of Paul instruct us not to do that. Why? Because we don't own vengeance. It's not ours. No, it solely belongs to who? The Lord. Just consider for a moment what this means. Have you ever pondered the significance of the statement? Christian, this means that when we do take revenge... We are actually stealing. We are taking something that belongs solely to God, then administering it as we see fit. How arrogant of us. Christian, who has offended you? Who has hurt you? Is there anyone you're tempted to get back at? Indeed, what have you been thinking about that person? Have you been fantasizing in your mind how you can make him or her pay? Faith, David was about to do that with Nabal and in so doing, ruin his life. 
Yet God in his kindness restrained him. And in so doing, taught David this important truth. Vengeance is the Lord's, not yours. So if we aren't to take matters into our own hands, what ought we do instead? Well, the good news is the Bible's not silent on this matter. So what I want us to do is just for a few moments, I'd like us to flip over to Romans chapter 12. Whenever we are studying the Bible, it's very important to ask this question. And that is, is the passage I'm looking at, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Especially when you're studying the Old Testament. What I mean is, is the passage simply describing an event or is it commanding us to do something? Descriptive or prescriptive? Just because, faith, a passage describes something it does not mean it's prescribing the reader to do the same. For example, at the end of the chapter, David takes two wives. It describes him taking two wives. Are we to infer that we're to take multiple wives as well? I mean, remember, David was a man after God's own heart. Faith, what makes a sermon biblical is not how many verses the pastor quotes but rather what makes the sermon biblical is that the main point of the sermon is the main point of the text. And as we already established through repeated emphasis, the author of 1 Samuel 25 makes it clear that the main issue of this chapter is about taking revenge. Namely, how the Lord restrained David from taking matters into his own hands by killing Nabal. You see, faith, this story, it isn't about sheep shearing or Nabal's stupidity. And actually, it's really not even about Abigail and her courage or how to live with a difficult spouse. No, the main point of this text is about taking revenge. And it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And whenever we encounter a passage that is descriptive in nature, like our text, it serves us well, it serves us well to see if there's any apostolic prescriptive teaching on that very issue or topic. And in this case, it would be about taking revenge. And the good news is, there is. And it's found in Romans 12. Now, please, please hear me. I am not saying that we cannot glean insights from descriptive narratives. Yes, we can. For example, Abigail is a model of gentle and humble persuasion. I mean, she found herself in one of the most perilous situations anyone could find themselves in, didn't she? I mean, think about it. An an army of men were going to kill her and her family. I think you would do the same thing. She's in this perilous situation, yet she acted in winsome humility. And we ought to commend Abigail for that. But Faith, I just want to suggest, I don't think this is the text to go to for how husbands and wives should handle their differences. Why? Because Abigail's marriage is not the focus of the story. The Lord restraining David is. In fact, 
concerning the question, which maybe some of you women have right now, as you think about what you would do if you're an Abigail, concerning the question, what should a wife do whose husband does not obey the word of God? We don't have to guess at that answer. Why? Because the apostle Peter answers the question directly, doesn't he? In 1 Peter 3, we have clear apostolic teaching concerning this matter. And this is what's interesting to me as I was, I was pondering it this week. Interesting enough, Peter, who would have known the Old Testament very well, would have been very familiar with the story of David and especially Abigail. Peter, who would have known all this, when he chooses to give an example for how Christian wives ought to respond to a husband who does not obey the word of God, who does Peter cite as an example? Does he cite Abigail? No, he cites Sarah, Abraham's wife. And again, this is not to say we, we shouldn't glean anything from Abigail. Yes, we absolutely can and should. But faith, when it comes to counseling ourselves with the God-given wisdom from God's word, our starting point ought to be apostolic prescriptive teaching, which is why I want us to look at Romans 12. For here we get a clear from, from God through Paul how we're supposed to think about concerning revenge. So this is what I want to do. I just want to read Romans 12, verses 14 through 21, and make a couple of applicational remarks, okay? So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read this. Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That is to give yourself to humble tasks. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And this is the verse we just read together a moment ago. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. This is exactly what Abigail was saying to David. But leave it to the hand of God, to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Now, I just want to say, there is much we could say from this passage. Much. In fact, I'd encourage you even later today to reread it. Go over it again this afternoon. However, I just want to direct your attention to, to three commands Paul gives believers when tempted to repay evil for evil. And the first is this, that he, he kind of highlights, and that is we should first adopt a spirit of humility. Notice what Paul writes there in verse 16. He says, do not be haughty, and he says, never, never be wise in your own eyes. Now, look, 
Should Nabal have given David and his men some food? Yes. Was Nabal acting foolishly? Again, yes. However, it's hard also not to see David having an entitled attitude here, isn't it? And I don't think it is insignificant that in the context of Paul talking about not repaying evil for evil, he commands us not to be wise in our own eyes, but instead to have a humble spirit. Think about how many conflicts would never arise if we practiced this. That is, if we purposed not to be wise in our own eyes, but instead adopted a spirit of humility. I mean, take, for example, uh, what I mentioned earlier, Maria Cooley, who I mentioned earlier. Think about this. Had she had the humility of heart to just ask her boss if they were looking to hire more people, rather than her being wise in her eyes in assuming the motives and intentions of her boss's heart, she would not have destroyed two and a half million dollars worth of architectural plans and be thrown and arrested. Nor would she have been mistakenly offended. In fact, I wonder how many of us are unnecessarily offended at someone simply because we are wise in our own eyes and we believe we know the heart and motives of others. Could that be you this morning? Second, I think Paul is directing us to consider ways to bless your enemy. Look at what he says there in verse 17. He, he says it also there in, in verse 14, but I think he elaborates there on verse 17 when he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Notice, this is something we're actually to think about. <laughs> we're to have it fill our, our gray matter. You know, we all love, or can tend to love, giving thought to doing nice things for the people we're affectionate towards or love. But consider the radical nature of this passage. We are to give thought to how we can bless those who are evil towards us. <laughs> this, is, this is radical stuff. So let's just apply this in the context of family, okay? Christian, do you have a sibling who's often mean and hurtful towards you or a family member? Are you tempted to get back at him or her? Remember, vengeance is whose? Lord's. Friend, I want you to notice, and please hear me, your suffering does not go unnoticed by God. The evil you're experiencing at the hand of others does not go unnoticed by God. He sees you and cares for you. And what he commands of you in that situation is that you can consider how to bless your enemy. So what could you do? Give your, your sibling a word of encouragement, a nice gesture, provide some tangible need. Keep in mind, they may not appreciate it, but God does. Indeed, he will smile with delight as he sees his child loving his enemy. 
And then finally, because vengeance is the Lord's and not ours, we are to repay evil with good. Look at again at verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, he will he you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. Now, ancient armies often used burning coals to fend off attackers. They put the burning coals on arrows. Uh, Psalm 120 verse 4 references this, if you're interested. And commentators tell us that no soldier could resist this weapon for long. It eventually overcame even the most determined attacker. And notice Paul is saying that love has the same overwhelming power. Faith, we're not simply to consider ways to bless our enemies. We're to actually do it. W.C. Fields spent his last weeks in a hospital and one day a friend stopped by for a visit as he's lying there in the hospital bed about to die and he caught Fields reading the Bible. And when a friend asked Fields why he was reading the Bible, Fields replied, loopholes, I'm looking for loopholes. Right? You know, I think our hearts want to do the same after reading a passage like this. I know mine does. Loopholes. Surely there's a loophole here. Because we intuitively know how hard this is, we hope there is some loophole that is going to get us off the hook, that this doesn't apply to me in my situation. But friend, there isn't a loophole. But you know what? There's something even greater. Christian, please hear me. God doesn't give us a loophole, but instead the Bible gives us the Savior who overcame our evil by his death and resurrection so that through faith in Christ, we in turn can overcome evil with good. You see, this command here cannot be properly understood apart from the larger context of Paul's argument in Romans. The command there in chapter 12, verse 21, is based on the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ Paul has been elaborating on in Romans chapter 1 through 11. In other words, what Jesus Christ has done for us as described in the first 11 chapters is the foundation and model for how we overcome evil with good. Friend, hear me. The Bible teaches that in our natural state, we are not just indifferent towards God, we are actually God's enemies. There's enmity between us and God. And get a load of this, it comes from both sides, ours and his. Our hearts are willful and rebellious and insubordinate and his wrath is on us because of our rebellion. God is justifiably angry with us and we deserve his eternal punishment because of our sin. This is true of every person on this green planet and that's bad news. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent Jesus Christ to suffer and die on the cross not for his friends, but for his enemies, people like you and me. Now think about this just for a moment. 
We can imagine a king giving his life for his loyal subjects. That we can comprehend. But a king dying for those who are his sworn enemies? People that don't love him? People who are actively at war against him? That's a little bit harder to imagine, yet, friend, that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. And friend, the good news of the Bible is that salvation comes to those who confess their sin to God. They admit their hostility and then trust that God's provision for their salvation, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is sufficient to pay the penalty for for their sins and to reconcile them to God. So that now those who trust in Christ, we are no longer God's enemies. You know what we are? We are God's children, amen? Oh, what good news. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. And friend, believing that a man died for his enemies who are unable to say themselves, that is the power more than a loophole, that is the power that can enable you, Christian, to overcome evil with good by loving your enemies. And it's only when we truly grasp the extraordinary, unearned kindness that God demonstrates to us in Jesus Christ that we can then do the same by loving people who don't deserve our love. Faith, we do not overcome evil with good by good advice from a Dear Abby column. No, we overcome evil with good by good news. Hear me, Christian. You can overcome evil with good because Christ did so for you. Amen? Let's pray.